Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... That the no is going to cause people to get wild up, to be upset, to be angry, to be concerned or afraid of other people, thereby staying on that platform longer, consuming more. Social media has shifted to focus on engagement through anger. We look at how it can negatively affect democratic societies. Also coming up on the program... And I think Lee David and the band went over there willing to learn. They wanted to open themselves up to what this beautiful culture from our close neighbour had to offer. According to documentary director Rosie Jones, the culture of Papua New Guinea would be a key feature in the power of the work Not Drowning Waving in David McBride's music. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. Taylor Swift searches were blocked on X after sexually explicit deep fakes of her proliferated all over social media on sites such as Reddit and Facebook. Swifties, the singer's loyal fan base, quickly mobilised to take the content down. Not everyone enjoys such fan-powered defence. Olivia Bowie asked Professor Lyria Bennett-Moses from UNSW Law School, if it can happen to Taylor Swift, can it happen to us? not good, right? Clearly there's a, there's a risk um, that anyone, the same sort of deep fake can be made for, for anyone and shared online. Part of the real challenge here is that often it's very difficult to chase that down. So even though you might be able to have it taken down from one site, once it's available on the internet, it can proliferate. Why are deep fakes so concerning? concerning for a number of reasons. I mean, the one is just a basic sense that we can rely on images and videos for understanding truth. You know, a lot of disinformation um, that goes on in society generally, and, and that becomes really problematic. You know, you see an image of something, you assume that happened, and now increasing we're learning, well, you can't actually assume that anymore for video, images, voice, anything else. It's really got a lot of other, um, you know, potential harms. You mentioned the sort of, you know, intimate image problem, which is obviously a really big one. Another one is just in terms of scams and frauds. People can call up someone using the voice of that person's spouse or child to ask for credit card information, for example, and you assume you're talking to someone you know because it's their voice. So there's a lot of different contexts in which it can cause a lot of harm. How does Australian law address the issue of deep fakes? It partly depends on the context. So there is a lot of law that might be relevant depending on the circumstances. It might be defamatory. You could bring proceedings and defamation. You might be able to rely on the intimate image laws. Uh, you know, if there's fraud has occurred, you know, that's also a crime and, and, and potentially a civil action. So there's all sorts of potential answers to that question, but it's going to depend on the circumstances. So there isn't a sort of one law to rule them all. If somebody, out of intellectual curiosity, creates a deep fake video on their own computer using a photo that they themselves have taken and never releases it publicly, they're not doing anything wrong. But if, if I put it out there and I'm suggesting that someone did something in a way that's defamatory of that person, well, then I might be liable for that. If I'm a business and I'm using deep fakes to pretend my product has features that it doesn't really have, 
consumer law will come in, um, and so forth. There's different answers depending on the context rather than one thing. Um, one thing the government is working on, though, and is looking at is what laws it might need for safe and responsible artificial intelligence. There's been a report on that and government has replied to that report and is looking into what additional laws might be required. And I'm sure that deep fakes is very much one of the things that might mean that there might be new laws in that area. Why would particular sectors or industries be more vulnerable to the negative consequences of deep fakes? You know, the media is one organisation, um, you know, relies on both employees and contractors for photos and video footage when that goes wrong, you know, because it publishes a lot of content, that's a sector that, that really needs to have really clear policies, be able to detect such things and have be able to sort of manage deep fakes as a really important part of their business. This really becomes a problem, especially with voice deep fake, with things like um, frauds and scams and so forth. I'm imagining that's something that, you know, a lot of, of organisations are going to have to think about, particularly if employees get scanned by someone who sounds like their boss. It's another vector to think about in the sort of cybersecurity threat environment for, for most organisations. Where do you think we're going with all of this? Where do you think this is going to end? I think it depends on the decisions we make. One of the questions that, that comes up in when I said government's looking at new laws about safe and responsible artificial intelligence is whether we need to think about some kind of transparency mechanisms and requirements. So do you have to say when you publish a photo or video if you have manipulated that in some way, should you have to be public about that and open about that? Images are manipulated all the time. I think we all know that way before deep fakes, models look better in magazines than they do in real life because people are manipulating those photos. But I do think because the level of manipulation is much stronger, that there's a much stronger desire to, for people to, to be able to tell the difference. That still won't solve the whole problem. It will solve some of the problem because at least organisations will have to take those kinds of laws seriously. But the real challenge with the internet is whatever we might do in Australia, you know, how do you deal with the fact that the person who is doing the deep fake of a relative's voice might not be in Australia, might not be someone you can track down, you know, and the fraud's being committed from another country. It's, it's very hard for legal systems to manage those kinds of cross-jurisdictional issues. It's very hard in a context such as the internet. Sometimes people can be tracked down. Sometimes it's a major organisation that's done it and everyone knows who it is, but sometimes it's not. And so that becomes a real challenge. Professor Lyria Bennett-Moses, Director of the UNSW Allens Hub for Technology, Law and Innovation, speaking there with Olivia Bowie. Hey there, I'm Hamish McDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. Recent data released by the New South Wales Education Department warns that there is a grave teacher shortage in New South Wales. Further data on teaching issues reveals this issue extends across the nation. Georgia Hayway asked President of the Australian Education Union, Karina Haythorpe, how badly the teacher shortage is affecting the education sector. We've been at crisis point for some time with respect to the teacher shortage. We've got escalating workloads for teachers and a lack of resources 
uh, to work with, you know, students who need that extra support because they have complex needs. So teachers are doing an incredible job, but they need to be backed with governments uh, with full funding. And so we know that this is replicated across the nation because a national survey that we conducted last year showed that nine out of 10 principals uh, had positions that they were unable to fill. What is the role of the AU in working to combat the crisis and how much responsibility do uh, state and federal governments have in working to combat these issues? We're a national union which covers um, teachers and education support personnel across all sectors and so we are very in touch with the issues that are facing uh, our members. Um, We're working closely with governments on policy changes but also running a national campaign called For Every Child which is about ensuring that all schools are fully funded and that teachers are backed with the resources needed um, by governments. On the point of increasing casualisation of the teaching workforce, do you think casualisation works for teaching staff and why has it become such a necessary part of the workforce today? Well, casualisation is a huge issue uh, in terms of attraction and retention for uh, teachers. There are a number of vacancies which need to be covered by casual employees, such as if someone is taking um, maternity or parenting leave. But the reality is, is that many systems now are using casual teachers to fill, you know, escalating escalating gaps in the profession. Beginning teachers will say uh, very clearly that permanency and ongoing work is very important, and it is one of the reasons that they leave the profession if they can't secure that work. There was a recent study commissioned by the E61 Institute on how economic factors relate to the quality of teaching staff. Apparently, more high-quality teachers are being stationed in higher socioeconomic areas with students in in disadvantaged areas missing out. Is this a trend you're picking up at the AEU? And if so, what do you think about the issue itself? There is most definitely a trend with respect to teacher shortages. We know that country regions, rural uh, and remote locations and um, communities with uh, high levels of disadvantage are having difficulty in terms of attracting and retaining um, teachers. That's why we need appropriate incentives and good conditions of work uh, and that's why we need the funding that actually addresses the inequality issues that many of those schools face. And when we talk about funding, what exactly are we funding? Are we looking at higher salaries for teachers There is a schooling resource standard, which is the minimum uh, funding benchmark that's been agreed to by all governments. But the reality is that only 1.3% of schools across Australia are funded to that standard. And governments right now are undertaking negotiations to uh, um, deliver funding. And what we're saying is that we need the Albanese government to step up and take the lead and make sure that all schools are actually at that schooling resource standard. That will alleviate the workload crisis and that will alleviate the attraction retention crisis that we have in the profession. And we, when we talk about resourcing, it is getting more teachers into schools, right? Is, is that the main intention of increasing that, the level of money in the sector? Schools are really clear about what's needed. We need more teachers to make sure that we've got smaller class sizes and that we've got more specialist support to help students uh, who need that extra help. That requires funding and that's why we're uh, calling on the government to step up and deliver uh, what public schools need. We hear a lot in the media about teachers coping with unmanageable workloads. Where do you think this problem stems from and, and how do you think it can be curtailed? 
there is a direct link between funding and workloads. When you starve a system of the resources that it needs, then that impacts on the people that work in that system. We've got teachers now who are working 56 hours a week uh, on average uh, every week across the year, um, and that's unsustainable. It's one of the reasons that uh, uh, beginning teachers are not staying in the profession, and it's one of the reasons that ongoing teachers are actually leaving the profession. And finally, are you aware of how the shortage is affecting parents and students? Is there a loss of confidence in the quality and supply of our teachers nationally? I think that parents understand that teachers are doing an incredible job despite um, the workloads they're facing and the ongoing teacher shortages. We want to make sure that every child has a fully qualified teacher for every class uh, every single day. When teacher shortages are impacting schools, we do know that schools are having to combine classes and supervise students in gyms and libraries and that's not sustainable going forward. It's not what parents want and it's not what teachers want. Karina Haythorpe, President of the Australian Education Unit, speaking there with Georgia Highway. Whenever I want to catch up with current affairs in Australia, I head to thewire.org.au or I follow them on Twitter. I just search for The Wire Radio, or one word. And yes, they're on Facebook too. Over time, social media has become a vehicle for the dissemination and discussion of political viewpoints and analysis. As global elections begin to populate social media feeds, ongoing crises call for people to pick sides and social media has become a minefield where users are exposed to misinformation on a massive scale. Stephen Samaras asked Professor Yuri Gal how social media has changed and become a tool for misinformation. When it first became a real societal-level phenomenon back in the mid-2000s, social media platforms, they were pretty benign in the sense that they were not designed in order to inflate or propagate certain ideas of views across large swaths of people. They were mainly intended to help people connect with other people who were like-minded, pretty innocent in a way. It was the people behind these platforms initially had the best intentions in mind in terms of trying to help people improve their lives. But as they grew, as more people started using them and they become became more expensive to operate and to run, the pressure increased for these platforms to actually start making money to generate revenue. What makes social media so effective for spreading misinformation and generating extremist attitudes? Social media are fairly sophisticated, algorithmically driven platforms today, meaning that what they see is individual to them. And the content that gets shown to each individual person is driven by a set of very sophisticated algorithms predicting what specific content would be most effective at causing this person to stay longer on that platform. There's decades, if not more, psychological research that demonstrates that people tend to be drawn to the content and be more engaged with content that's emotive in nature, that causes them to feel and sense strong emotions, specifically negative emotions, anger, fear, frustration, things of that nature. And so these algorithms are very well calibrated to propagate out and inflate the magnitude and the scope of content that specifically that, that they know is going to cause people to get wild up to be upset, to be angry, to be concerned or afraid of other people, thereby staying on that platform longer, consuming more. What are the negative effects of social media uh, upon mental health? There's been a lot of research in the last 20 years that kind of documents correlational evidence of how social media use is associated with a a long range of different types of of, um, mental illnesses from anxiety and depression and eating disorders and suicide ideation and things of that nature. And these have been found to be 
especially common among young people. How do the negative effects of social media on mental health intersect with extremist viewpoints? The media establishment has a certain set of ground rules in terms of what counts for knowledge that should be shared with the audience. And I'm not saying that they always get it right. I am saying that at least there used to be in many cases a set of procedures and standards and practices that were meant to ensure that whatever was put in front of people on their TVs or newspapers was good, reliable, valid information. That was the incentive structure that guided the work of journalists for the longest time. And with the social media platforms, all these incentives and structures, they don't exist. Really, the main thing that matters for social media, media platforms is to enhance and increase user engagement. What are the effects of the attitudes developed for users on social media in democratic societies, and do they begin to affect policy or political discourse? Many politicians in many democratic societies, notably Donald Trump, interact and and engage with their audiences, with their electorate through social media. And the unique nature of democracy is that in order for democratic societies to flourish is the ability to have a, a robust and effective conversation amongst large number of people that represent democratic institutions, the government, uh, and so on, but citizens on the other hand. And one of the main effects of social media is that due to the, like the propagation of knowledge, of content rather, that's not specifically rooted in objective fact, is that people kind of get untethered and, and sucked into different rabbit holes uh, and believing in different theories and, and um conspiracies that may have nothing to do with reality. And once that happens at scale, you lose the ability as society, as a society, to have a, a meaningful conversation that accommodates multiple viewpoints. How can we limit the damage of misinformation uh, and the adverse effects of negative mental health from social media in the current era of such saturation of social media? So I think the problem is multi-pronged and therefore it requires a multi-pronged solution. There are several actors in this digital ecosystem, if you will, that take part in in enabling the adverse effects we've spoken about before. Uh, We have the government on the one hand, we have social media platforms and individuals. Each of them has a role to play in mitigating the effects, the adverse effects of social media. I think individuals need to be way more informed about the information that they consume on social media. Professor Yuri Gal, Professor of Business Information Systems at the University of Sydney, speaking there with Stephen Samaras. Hi, I'm Ray Martin. You're listening to The Wire on community and Indigenous radio right across Australia. Stay well. A new documentary explores the ability of music and friendship to transcend hundreds of kilometres of ocean, chronicling the story of David Bridie's continuing collaboration with Papua New Guinea singer Sir George Telek. Stephen Hill asked the film's director, Rosie Jones, what it was like chronicling one of New Guinea's most important musical performers. Look, he's such a humble person. You wouldn't know that he was Sir George. He's a very down-to-earth person with the most 
gorgeous voice. David and him have such an extraordinary relationship. You can see they're they're really close when you watch them interacting. They have a real shared sense of humour, obviously the love of music. But to be honest, the most difficult thing about chronicling George's life is the fact that there was very little archive. I think in Papua New Guinea people didn't have cameras, so it was very hard to find any footage of his early life. I'm interested in that. There was a comment that, unlike a lot of Westerners that would go over to Papua New Guinea, that there very much was an interaction of equals between David and George. Yes. I mean, what I find really interesting in the film is it seems like David and, and the band are very eager to be immersed in the popular culture. How important was this relationship that's developed that David and his bandmates form with the Papua New Guinea performers? Oh, look, I think the relationships were everything. And I know that David was so impressed on his first trip with his sophistication and the depth and the beauty of Papua New Guinean culture. And, you know, they have a massive number of languages and each language group has their own dances and rituals. And so it became very obvious that this was a culture of incredible richness. And I think Lee David and the band went over there willing to learn. They wanted to open themselves up to what this beautiful culture from our close neighbour had to offer and, and how they could create an exchange with what they could bring, whatever that might be, so that the two cultures were equal. So it was incredibly collaborative. I think they had an enormous amount of fun, which you can see in the footage. There was none of the colonial stance that Papua New Guineans had been used to, and so many people described David and the band members as humble. And they weren't used to white guys and Helen Mountford speaking to them as equals. They were used to a servant-master relationship and so that that was a a big part of the relationship working as it has and enduring. So there's lots of connections between not only David but other band members and people in the community and that they got together as family. That was a, a really important part of the process and it's continued in all sorts of other guises. So you obviously had a lot of footage when it came to putting this film together from the live performance. David Bridey and George Tellick both adapting to their new environments to some pretty remarkable footage of Totoli rituals. Was it a challenge piecing all this together into a final cut? Oh, yes, of course. We were really lucky to get some fabulous archive from people like Mark Worth, who was the filmmaker who sparked David's initial journey, and he'd made a film for SBS about not drowning, waving and PNGs. We had just lots of stuff that David and George and Gideon Karkabin had sourced for the work that they've done on Tolai culture. Fabulous archive researchers Peter Fox and Lisa Savage who unearthed all sorts of stuff and also band members and all sorts of people who've been connected with Not Drowning Waving. It was a lot of work. We had the footage from the original trips to PNG that Jake Coombs and his crew had shot and of course David and George were fantastic helping with their music and the um, track selection and providing really beautiful atmospheres and so on. Uh, finally, I mean, I find at the heart of the film was this idea of ex- the power of the exchange of cultures and the, the sort of nature mm. of friendship and I mean I've certainly had the experience when I was visiting Indonesia I was amazed by the, the richness of the Indonesian indigenous music 
and I'd, 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 I'd often go to the to the Warangs and uh, they'd be there's fabulous music on and they'd be all very polite and they'd, they'd put on the Beatles or something or something some Western music for me thinking I'd like that and we'd sing along. <laughs> but I was just wondering, um, do you think that there's a lot of potential for Australia to be much more involved in, in developing a cultural exchange with you know, all these Melanesian islands and immediate Indo-Pacific area? It's just so much music talent. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we've barely scratched the surface. I mean, David set up the Wontok Foundation, which he works with people from all around the Pacific, and they all work together on performances and soundtracks and all sorts of different work. Some of it's very political, some of it not, but there's so much potential there. I just think it's such a crying shame that we don't recognise the power and value of working together culturally. There's a lot of focus at the moment on what's going on in the politics of Melanesia and everybody's wanting to exert power, but there's this other way of being friendly and working together that I think is so powerful and that's through music and culture and history and working to appreciate each other's strengths and and putting that together to be more than the whole. Rosie Jones, director of the documentary A Bibi Butterfly Song, speaking with Stephen Hill. This documentary on David Brady's projects will be touring as part of the Antenna Documentary Film Festival this February. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music.